We are in Revelation chapter 2, going through the Bible on Wednesday nights, Genesis through Revelation, and we are in Revelation chapter 2. All right, let's pray together. Father, as you encourage us in this section of Scripture to hear what the Spirit is saying to the church, we know that you're communicating and we desire to listen. So would you give us ears to hear what your Spirit is speaking to us, to, to Rocky Mountain Calvary, to us personally. So let's just take, take a moment to wait upon the Lord, wait upon the Spirit, see what the Spirit would speak to you this evening. Father, would you take the written word and cause it to be alive in our hearts? Would you write it upon the tablets of our hearts? And so we thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. A pastor had noticed that there was a man who had been faithful in their church uh, for many years, and all of a sudden he stopped coming and stopped being involved. And this this happened for several months, so he decided to to go pay his friend a, a visit. And as he knocks upon the door, uh, this man realized why the pastor was there. So he welcomes him in, and he had a fire uh, in his his family room and sat the pastor in a chair next to the fire. And and the pastor didn't say anything. He just grabbed the the fork for the fire, and he grabbed one ember and moved it from the rest of, of the flames. And the conversation continued in quiet awkwardness. And then the pastor was getting ready to leave, and he took uh, the ember and put it back where the rest of the flames were. And when it was isolated, it burned out, but then when it was put back with the rest of the hot coals, it caught flame. And as he was leaving, uh, this man said, "Uh, Pastor, I I got your fiery message. Uh, I'll be back in church on Sunday, right? But it's a little bit of a visual, isn't it, of the importance of church, not the building, but the people, relationships with one another inside of the body of Christ. We really do need one another. And this is a very special section of scripture because Jesus shows how important the church is to him. He writes a letter to seven churches specifically. And in this, we see that Jesus walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. So we're going to look at three of these letters tonight, and you'll find that they have several things in common. First is each church has their own unique attribute of Christ, which is awesome. So each church has something that Jesus wants them to know specifically about himself, and then a way that they bear the image of Christ. And that's true today. We see the body of Christ as a whole, and many times one particular local church fellowship will really have an emphasis about Christ, of his attribute, of his character, and then together, all the churches combined, we represent the body of Christ. Also, you'll see that each church gets an encouragement. And I don't think that these encouragements are just tongue-in-cheek from, from Jesus. Uh, I think he genuinely meant them. A lot of times we, when we think about uh, confrontation, we do the, the sandwich approach, right? Where you do a compliment, then you do the correction, and then you do another compliment. I don't think Jesus was going, okay, I, I need the sandwich approach to uh, correction. I think he really meant these encouragements that he gave uh, to the churches. And then five of the seven churches have correction that God provides to them. Two of the churches don't have any correction. And then each church has a promise that is given to them, a salutation that is given uh, to them. And so how do these letters apply? First, they do apply locally. There were seven churches in Asia Minor modern-day Turkey, God is writing through the Apostle John to these seven churches. And then there is a general application. There's an application to all churches. As we read these together as a church family, we should be looking of of how does this apply to us corporately as, as a body. But then there's personal application as we read these letters. Do I find myself identifying with one particular church? Or is there a part of each letter that God is speaking to me and uh, challenging me with? And so the first letter that we look at is to the church of Ephesus in verse 1 of chapter 2. To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, 
These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. First, we find to the angel that the letter is directed to the angel. And like we talked about last week, the word angel in the Greek means messenger. And you could look that up for yourself as well. And so there's two thoughts here, that this is a, a physical angel that is the messenger, or that this is referring to the pastor or pastors of, of uh, the church. And so I think either way, there's room for discussion there. And then the church that is being emphasized is the church of Ephesus. If you've been studying with us on the weekends, we're going through the book of Ephesians. The same church that Paul writes to is being directed to here as well. They have a very rich spiritual heritage. They were birthed in Acts chapter 19. The apostle Paul spends two years in Ephesus. We find Timothy left to pastor the church of Ephesus, how would you like to have Paul and Timothy as your pastors, right? So a great spiritual uh, heritage that was given to them. They're a seacoast city right upon the Mediterranean Sea, and Paul's encouragement to them in the book of Ephesians is now continued here by Christ in Revelation chapter 2. The attribute of Jesus that we find here is the one who holds the seven stars, who holds these seven angels, these seven messengers of the church, and then he walks in the midst of the golden lampstand. And this is an attribute of Jesus. This is something that we look about Jesus, is that Jesus is into his church and that he walks in the midst of of the church. Sometimes when we come to, to church or we get together with believers, we are aware of God's presence. We are aware of the reality that Jesus is here and delights to meet with his people, but there's sometimes where we're not as aware, you know? Sometimes as a, a pastor, you feel really engaged with the message, and then there's other times where you're searching to find the engagement with, with the message, there's sometimes as a, as a staff where we feel, man, everything that we have to offer in a sense is kind of, man, it's a, our A game. And then there's other times where we're like C minus at, at best. And then there's other times where we're like, we're somewhere way down at the bottom of the alphabet, right? But it doesn't matter if my perspective is that Christ is here or not, or if I feel like I've got something to offer, Christ is here, and he walks in the midst of the seven churches, the seven lampstands. And this is why we want to be committed to the church, big C, to the body of Christ, because Jesus is committed to, to the body of Christ. He says when two or three are gathered, that he's in our midst. It doesn't mean that he's not with us when we're not with believers, but he loves to work in our lives when we're gathered with brothers and sisters in Christ. How many times have you felt God speak to you as you've been in fellowship with another believer, as you've been in worship with, with other believers. What a privilege we have to come and, and sing together as we study God's word together. So Jesus is always in the midst of his seven churches, and they're all jacked up. They're all messed up. You know, five out of the, the seven are severely wrong. We would have probably been looking for a new church home with five out of these seven churches, but, but not Jesus. He's like, he's continued to walk in these seven golden lampstands. And we have this wonderful picture of what the church is to be. The body of Christ is to be as a lampstand. Why does God choose a lampstand? He's taking imagery back from, from the Old Testament with the tabernacle. And the purpose of the lampstand is to glorify God and to provide light into darkness. I think a lot of times with church, we get our priorities mixed up and it becomes focused on ourselves instead of focused on glorifying God. Us coming together, the, the sole purpose is that God would be glorified and that we could shine a light into a dark world, into a dark uh, community. I don't know if you guys have noticed, but the world is dark. I was reading uh, today's news and a lady who has been posting a lot of YouTube videos on being uh, vegan and really into fitness. That's where kind of the two things that she was, was really into. For some reason, she got upset at YouTube and she went into their headquarters in Southern California and shot three people, wounded three people, and then she killed herself. And they're calling it the YouTube uh, 
shooting. And as I read that in today's news, I was like, man, things are really messed up. You know, things are really dark. Like this lady's 39 years old and doing these bizarre videos and then deciding I got to go, sh- go shoot people uh, at, at YouTube and then killing herself. And I couldn't help but think she needed Jesus. And I don't know where her heart is. You know, I don't know her personally. But just from looking at the exterior, I was like, this woman desperately needed Christ. And there, there's so many people that need to know Christ as their Savior, and that's why we're here. You know, God could take all believers up to heaven. He could rapture the church if he wants to, and he's going to. But until he does that, we, we've got a job to do, and we're light into the darkness. I think you're a greater light than you realize. You know, you think about the light you are in your neighborhood and in your family and in your, your workplace, and it doesn't take a lot of light to impact darkness, doesn't it? A small light impacts uh, darkness. And so this is what Jesus has to say to this church. He says, I know your works, your labor, your patience, that you cannot bear with those who are evil and that you've tested those who say they are apostles and are not and have found them liars. And you have preserved and have patience. Persevered, a little different there. You have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. This is a great encouragement. Imagine if you heard this from Christ. Imagine if Jesus spoke this over Rocky Mountain Calvary and first Jesus says, I know. I know. He's intimately acquainted with the church of Ephesus. He's intimately acquainted with your life and in my life and he knows your works, he knows your labor, he knows your patience. And there's no tolerance for evil with the church of Ephesus. They're testing false apostles and found them to be, to be liars. And they persevere and they have patience. A lot of times when it comes to the church of Ephesus, we read too quickly over the encouragement because we know of the rebuke that's coming. And the rebuke stands out so much. But this encouragement is something that's worth pondering. It says they haven't become weary for for Christ's namesake. And we're very quick in our own lives to look at the correction, the necessary correction, and that's important. But also hear the encouragement. You know, what kind of encouragement would Christ give to you? You Are you a person that has held fast to the word of God, that's concerned with sound doctrine, that even when you're tired, you continue to persevere and you continue to labor. And it hit me as I was studying this and looking at it, if Jesus gives out encouragement to the body, so should we, right? There's some people that are at that school of saying, you know, I don't ever want to encourage somebody or give them compliments because they may be puffed up with pride. Well, Jesus wasn't worried about that. He's like, I'm not going to withhold a compliment to the church of Ephesus because they might be puffed up with pride. And I think there's times when the Holy Spirit is going to move upon you to encourage somebody. You know, you you see the good that, that is in their life and encourage it. Speak that over their life and say, man, I just noticed this about you and your heart for the Lord. I noticed this about you and your, your heart for others. And this is a great encouragement for the church of Ephesus. Verse four, now we get the correction. Nevertheless, I have this against you that you have left uh, your first love. They left their first love. They didn't lose their first love. This word love is agape. It speaks of God's love for people. And at one point, they had God's love in return for God and for other people, but they had left their, their first love. You know, sometimes you lose your keys and you don't know where you've placed them. That happened to anybody? I was at PetSmart this week, and I'm getting ready to walk out the door, and they're like, sir, don't forget your wallet. And I left my wallet right there, you know. It's like, that would be a good idea. I probably need that, right? That's not what happened with their love. It wasn't like, oh, I I misplaced my love, and I'm not sure where where I lost my love. If you were to ask the church of Ephesus, they would say, you know, when I first fell in love with Christ, this is what my relationship with Christ looked like. And and over time, I stopped doing those things. And I replaced those things with with busyness. And as we look at the church of Ephesus, uh, you know, the resume is really good. 
When you would look at the church of Ephesus from an outside perspective, you'd go, wow, what a church. You know, they're working so hard. This type of church would have a great testimony in the community because of the works that they were doing. They had a good reputation at the local seminary, the local Bible college, because their sound doctrine was, was so good and so, so, so solid. But then Jesus says, you know, there's something wrong here. You don't love me like you once did. You've left your, your first love. And isn't that what God has always been after, is our love? He first loved us so that we would love him. But yet it's easy to replace a love for Christ for, for other things. It's very similar to a marriage, isn't it? How many of you would want to be in a faithful marriage? Absolutely. want my spouse to, to be faithful. How many of you would want your spouse to, to even work in your behalf? Yeah, that would be great. I, I would love a spouse that would work in my behalf. But you would probably want there to be some love as well, don't you? Some agape love, God-flowing love. No one wants to be in a loveless marriage. And God is saying... I'm not interested in a loveless church. To illustrate this, a husband, when he was in his first year of marriage, his wife caught a cold, like so many colds that are going around this year in in Colorado. And he was so concerned about his wife, and it came upon her late in the evening, and he's like, do you need me to go to King Super's and get you some cough drops and cough syrup and some medicine so that you could be able to sleep. She's like, no, I think I'll be fine. It's just a small cold. But he wouldn't take no for an answer. Next thing you know, he's down at King Super's in the medicine aisle, comes home, gets her all uh, taken care of. Calls the doctor in the morning. The doctor laughs at him. Like, she's fine. It's just a cold. So that's year one, all right? Year three, his wife's coming down uh, with a cold, and and he responds, and he he says to her, are are you okay? Do you need anything? No, I I think I'm fine. And then year five of marriage, he notices the cough, but he doesn't say anything at all. He just assumes she's going to be fine. Well, year 10 of marriage, she's coughing, and he turns to her and says, man, you are really keeping me up. Would you please... (laughs) go sleep on the couch, right? Something's changed there from year one to year 10. You don't want to know what year 50 looks like, right? (laughs) It's easy to have happen in a relationship, isn't it? Where we leave our our first love. And I'm not saying that our love for Christ or our love for our spouse is emotional and it's filled with all the warm fuzzies, but it's this commitment of love that's followed with the actions of love. Interesting in Ephesians 1 verse 5, this letter that Paul writes to the same church, he says, therefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints. At that point, what were they known for? Their faith and their love. And something went wrong in the church together. And we oftentimes think about this individually and that's appropriate and we will, But as a whole church family, they weren't loving Jesus like they once were. You know, when new people come into our church, do they get the sense that we love God? Because we know that he loves us. Would they say, of all things of Rocky Mountain Calvary, it's evident that they love God and they love one another. Now, is sound doctrine important? Absolutely. It's so important. And Sound doctrine feeds into a love for God. But what if you have sound doctrine, but you don't have love? It's like having a beautiful pie crust with a terrible filling. Right? So you want a good crust. The crust is the foundation to a good pie, but you also want, want filling. And love is so important to, to the Lord. So here's the remedy in verse 5. Remember, therefore, from where you've fallen, repent and do the first works. Or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. There's four R's that are in verse 5. And the first is remember from when you've fallen. Remember your love. Maybe there was a time in your relationship with the Lord where you just loved to sing to him. You loved to read his word. You loved to go on walks and, and pray. You love to share Jesus with others. You were looking for for opportunities to serve. Remember what that was like. Remember when 
the commitment of love was there to the Lord. Because that remembering is what spurs us on to return. And then God calls this church to repent, to, to turn. Repent means to change direction. There needs to be change. For our love to change, our actions need to, to change. And what are they changed to? Do the first works. When you first received Christ as your Savior and fell in love with Christ, it was probably simple, wasn't it? And I almost get the idea that the church of Ephesus has gotten really busy with good things, but they're not busy with loving Jesus. Maybe they have this expectation of all the works that they're supposed to do that they had lost sight of, of worship. Usually it's one or two things in a person's life when we first fell in love with the Lord that we were doing, and it's different for everybody, but return to that. I know for me what it was when God got a hold of my life. The next morning I woke up and I wanted to read the Bible. It was the craziest feeling in the world. And I started in Matthew chapter one. And I read through the New Testament. And then I went to the Old Testament and I, and I started reading. I know that I'm leaving my first love with the Lord. I'm drifting from my relationship with the Lord if I'm not having that personal devotional time in the word. Apart from any sermon that, that I'm preparing because that was one of the first works that God drew me to. What, what was one of your first works? Was it that you wanted to be at church all the time? Was it that you loved to sing? Was it that you loved to, to reach out and tell people about Christ? But do those again. And the idea is never stop doing those. Never get so mature spiritually that we stop doing those things that we first did when we fell in love with the Lord. Redo the first work. So the first R is remember. The second is repent. The first is redo. And then the warning, or I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place. That's a strong warning from Christ. He is not interested in having a loveless church, even if they have sound doctrine, even if they're able to test and find false teachers. He's saying, I'm going to go ahead and close down this church. How does Jesus close down a church? He stops working. He stops moving. He stops pouring out his spirit. He stops providing. And it's tragic, isn't it? It's heartbreaking. I don't know why, but I, I tend to have a heart for old church buildings. And I know it's just a building. But it represents when God did work and a group of people sacrificed and they gave money and now there was a church building and then there was a church body and they were reaching out to that particular neighborhood and then something happened somewhere along the line and all of a sudden the doors are closed. The building's up for sale. Maybe it becomes apartments. Maybe it becomes a liquor store. Your heart longs for the day where, man, that was a church. That was, that was once a, a church. It's something I pray about here. There's, there's really no promise that RMC is going to continue as a church as we go on into the future, 20 years from now, 30 years from now. I mean, it would break my heart to, to drive by 20 years from now, and this isn't a church anymore. Now, do, could God have other plans? Absolutely. It's just a building. I know it's just brick and mortar, but I think this neighborhood's going to need a lampstand, don't you? You know? I would love to see the church continue to, to move forward into to the future. And God can very easily just say, you know what? I'm, I'm going to close that church down. You're, you're no longer going to be a lampstand in this, in this community. That's how important a love is to the Lord. In verse 6, but this you have that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now, there's nowhere in the scripture that tells us what Nicolaitans are. So we don't know for sure what this doctrine is. And the church of Ephesus hates the deeds of the Nicolaitans just as Jesus does. We have a little bit of indication from their name. Uh, Nikos means conquest. And then Laetans means laity. And so it seems to be that, that the people are having conquest that they're allowing the people to rule the church of God instead of God ruling uh, his own church. But ultimately, it's they're wrong in practice and they're wrong in doctrine, and the church of Ephesus did get this right. In verse 7, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is given to each church. He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. This is one of Christ's favorite lines as well. 
He that has an ear, let him hear. Spiritual hearing is so important to the Lord. The priests in the Old Testament, when they would enter into the priesthood, there would be blood placed on their right thumb and also blood uh, placed on their right ear. Kind of weird, you know? Hey, you're going to be a pastor. Let me see your ear. Put some blood right on your ear. What was God saying to these priests? He's saying, I want your ear. I want you listening to me. And God wants us listening to him. And we have ears, but are we listening? The Spirit is expressly speaking to the church. He's speaking to us. But are we listening to what the Spirit is saying to the churches? The idea is the church of Ephesus gets this letter, and then they stop and listen, and Holy Spirit, what are you speaking to me? And the same for us tonight as as we read this. Holy Spirit, what are you speaking to me? I don't think that the church of Ephesus probably expected to hear this from Christ. They probably felt that they were in love with Christ because of all that they were doing, and they had to stop and really think about it. And what is it maybe that Christ is saying about our love as well? Here's the promise. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Overcome means to conquer, to persevere. Church of Ephesus, keep going forward. Return to your first love. And as you return to your first love, here's eternal life. You're gonna eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God or in the midst of heaven. We're introduced to the tree of life at the beginning of Genesis, and then we see the tree of life again in in Revelation chapter 22. Let's go on to verse eight to the church of Smyrna. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write, these things says the first and the last who was dead and came to life. Smyrna was a large and wealthy city 35 miles north of Ephesus, and it was also a seaport, a seacoast city. What's interesting about Smyrna is it still remains a city today where Ephesus is in ruins. There's about 200,000 people that live in Smyrna. Smyrna literally means myrrh, and that's an important thing uh, throughout Scripture. Myrrh was used in anointing the tabernacle as well as embalming dead bodies. Myrrh releases fragrance when it's crushed. We see one of the gifts given to Jesus when he was a baby was myrrh. When Jesus was on the cross, they gave him wine mingled with myrrh to drink. Nicodemus, when buried Christ, he brought a hundred pounds of myrrh. Why is this important with the church of Smyrna? They're one of the churches that receives no correction from God, but they are being crushed. They're being crushed with persecution, and their fragrance is a sweet smell and aroma to God. Here's their attribute of Christ. These says the first and the last who was dead and come to life. Each attribute's important to where the particular church is at. The the church of Ephesus, Christ is in your midst, love him. To the church of Smyrna, you're getting persecuted, but Jesus is the first and the last. Your persecutors don't have the last word, Jesus has the last word. He's eternal, he's the first and the last. He was the one who was dead and came to life, so even if you're martyred for your faith, you're going to have eternal life. Verse 9, I know your works, your tribulation, and your poverty, but you are rich. I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. So first, once again, Jesus says, I know. How encouraging would that be? I know your works. I know you're continuing to be faithful I also know your tribulation. If you're going through tribulation, Jesus would say to you, I know, in a comforting way. I understand that you're getting your can kicked. I know you're going through tribulation. Jesus also says, I know your poverty. They were poor. This was a poor church, but yet they were rich. It doesn't always work this way, but a lot of times with tribulation and poverty becomes great riches in Christ if we're willing to look to Christ. Because when there's a lot of things, sometimes those things become idols. Not always. But it's not a coincidence that this church is going through great tribulation, great tribulation, extreme poverty, but yet they're rich in Christ. They're holding on to Christ. Who's persecuting them? It's those that are Jews, 
but Jesus says they're not true Jews, meaning that they've turned their back upon God and their synagogue is a synagogue of Satan. It's become a place where the enemy does work against the church of God. I love the exhortation in verse 10. Don't fear any of those things which are about you're about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested and you will have tribulation 10 days. Be faithful unto the end and I will give you the crown of life. One of the hardest things with trial and tribulation is fearing what's gonna come next. This is so hard now. If this gets worse, I don't know what I'm gonna do. Ever been there, right? And our minds just take control and worry just devastates us and that has to be where the church of Smyrna is at and Jesus says I don't want you to worry I don't I don't want you to be afraid don't fear of the things which you're about to suffer maybe you know that suffering is on the horizon and you're afraid maybe you're going through a time of, of trial and that's Christ's word to you is don't fear what's coming next. Don't fear this time of suffering. Don't look for a way out. God is encouraging them saying, you know what? I know that you're suffering. And in fact, it's gonna get worse. And you're gonna suffer for, for 10 days and you're gonna be thrown into prison for your relationship with Christ, but it's gonna be worth it. What we understand in our theology about God is sometimes God allows suffering. God is the ultimate authority, and Satan is at play here. But Satan has to have permission from God to allow suffering. We see that in the book of Job. Before Satan messed with Job, he had to have the permission of, of the Father. So God, in his infinite wisdom, is allowing the church of Smyrna to suffer, is allowing them to be persecuted, even to the point of death. And, and God's going to allow suffering in our lives as well. Now, I'll be honest with you. I don't like suffering. I'm not the kind of person that says, yeah, just, just sign me up for suffering. I want things to be as difficult as possible. I'm probably just like the next person that's saying, you know, if there's a way out of suffering, that would be great. Lord, please take us down that, that track. But I do understand what God does through suffering. Like I mentioned just a moment ago, I don't think it's a coincidence that the church of Smyrna doesn't have any correction from Christ. Sometimes the suffering in our lives is the greatest gift from God because it keeps us close to God. It'd be hard to get a picture or grasp what our minds, our lives, excuse me, might be like if we didn't have suffering. Where would I have drifted from the Lord? Where would I have rebelled from the Lord? What kind of sin would I have gotten into? And this trial, this tribulation, it kept me close to Christ. We also know that the greatest understandings of who God is comes through tribulation. How well did the church of Smyrna know Christ because of the tribulation? How well did they know the sufferings of Christ because they too were persecuted? We know that character is born in suffering Romans 5 tells us to glory in tribulation because tribulation produces perseverance. Perseverance produces character and character hope. And then the love of God is exploded into our hearts. It'd be nice if you could buy character on Amazon and they could ship it to you prime three days. I'll, I'll take some godly character. Boom, prime, coming come my way. And we do live in an instant gratification society, don't we? we? We want it now. We don't want it the hard way. But godly character comes through trial. It comes through difficulty. It comes through suffering for, for Christ's name. It's part of, part of the Christian life. And to say, okay, Lord, I, I don't understand, but I'm choosing to, to trust you. And not always, but many times in our lives as we continue to, to journey with the Lord, is we come to see what God was doing in the suffering. Apparently on Sunday, as we were locked in on the clouds Sunday morning, Woodland Park was above the clouds, and they were enjoying a beautiful sunrise while Colorado Springs was locked in the haze, right? And a lot of our time of life, as we're suffering, we're locked into the clouds, and God's able to see above the clouds, isn't he? 
And God is speaking to the church of Smyrna, and he's saying, it's going to be hard. You're, you're going to be persecuted, but I want you to keep going, and I want you to be faithful to the end, and I'll give you the crown of life. Keep going. Be faithful. Don't give up in tribulation. Don't give up because it's difficult. Maybe it's difficult in the family, difficult in the marriage, difficult with kids, difficult in your job, difficult in following Christ. Don't give up. Be faithful. And we don't even have any idea how difficult it is if we were to give up, right? Giving up's not an option. Keep going, keep being faithful because the crown's coming. Be faithful, the crown is, is coming. In verse 11, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit's saying to the churches. For some tonight, is there tribulation that the Spirit's trying to speak to you about? Is there some type of trial that you're trying to run out of and God's saying, just wait, just be patient. Don't try to get out of the trial. The trial's not going anywhere. I've got you right where you, I want you. I want to teach you. I want to instruct you. What's the Spirit saying to us about suffering in our lives? The encouragement to he who overcomes, you're not going to be hurt by the second death. What in the world's the second death? The first death is when we die physically. The second death is when we die spiritually. For those that don't know Christ as their Savior, that stand before the great white throne judgment, and they're separated from God from all of eternity. And so the encouragement to the church of Smyrna is keep going, you're inheriting eternal life. The last church we're going to look at this evening is the church of Pergamos. And to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. The attribute of Christ is the sharp two-edged sword. And Jesus has a very exacting surgical word for the church of Pergamos to purge them from sin. The church of Pergamos is the compromising church, the, the church that has found themselves deep in sin. Pergamos is about 20 miles inland from Smyrna, like Ephesus and Smyrna, it was a wealthy city, but it was also wicked. There was a lot of pagan cults, a lot of idolatry to false gods. They had a, a famous university as well with a library of about 200,000 volumes. The atmosphere of the city was adverse to any effective Christian life uh, and testimony. In verse 13, Jesus speaks to them. He gives encouragement. I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And you hold fast to my name and didn't deny my faith even in the days in which Antipas, my faithful martyr who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. So Satan's mentioned a lot. Satan loves to attack the church. Even this compromising church gets an, a compliment from Christ. I think in any believer we can see things to be able to encourage. What they're encouraged in is their works. They're in a very dark place spiritually where Satan's throne is. You know, you can probably think about cities in the United States, cities in the world where you go, it's just darker spiritually. You, you go into those cities and you're like, man, there's a spiritual darkness that's here. And that was the case for Pergamos. But they held fast even to the point where Antipas was martyred. They continued to, to hold fast. But here's the correction, the rebuke that Jesus gives. But I have a few things against you. Because you, you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. So the things that Jesus has against the church of Pergamos is who they're allowing to teach. And they're teaching this inside of the church. This isn't happening outside of the church. This is happening inside of the church. Doctrine means teaching. And so they're teaching the doctrine of Balaam. Now, what in the world's Balaam? Sometimes in the New Testament, the only way to understand it is to go to the Old Testament. If you're new to the scriptures, one of the greatest tools that's given to our time and age is BibleGateway.com. And it is free 90 free if you've got internet access. You go on there and you type in Balaam, and you're going to find everywhere in the Bible that Balaam's mentioned in Numbers where his story begins. But he was hired by Balak, 
who is the king of Moab, to curse the children of Israel as they're crossing through the wilderness. And long story short, I'm summarizing here, Balaam finally gets to where the children of Israel are encamped, and when he tries to give a cursing, God turns it to a blessing, which is really encouraging. God can take cursing and turn it into blessing. But Balaam's heart is still where he wants to receive money from the king, king of Balak. So he gives this counsel at the end of all this. After seeing God turn his cursing into blessing, he ends up pronouncing blessing on the children of Israel. He says, if you send in Moabite women into the camp of Israel, I know exactly what's going to happen. The Israelite men are going to enter into sexual immorality, and then they're going to enter into idolatry, and you're going to destroy the children of Israel. I can't curse them for you. God won't let me curse them. But this is definitely the way that you're going to defeat them, and it's through sexual sin. And that's exactly what happened. The Moabite women go in. The, the Israelite men have no se- sexual self-control. They begin to enter into sexual immorality and enter into idolatry, and great destruction happens in the children of Israel. So what Paul, or excuse me, John is writing to the church of Pergamos is they're allowing the doctrine of Balaam in the church. And then this is causing them to eat things that are sacrificed to idols. It's leading them to idolatry and to commit sexual immorality. Church, maybe uh, at this point, Rocky Mountain Calvary, in tonight's message, you're getting tired. Wednesday night's tough, isn't it? It's like, man, it feels like bedtime, right? Is I think that where the American church is at is the Church of Pergamos and the Church of Thyatira that we're going to study next week. Because you can go to countless churches in the United States and hear the doctrine of Balaam. What do I mean? It's saying the world's message on God's teaching for sexuality. It's one thing for unbelievers to say, hey, this is what you should do with sex. You can do whatever you want with sex. Anything under the sun is fine. But it's another thing to come into God's house, to have a pastor open up God's word, and say, God blesses homosexuality. This is God's teaching that God is, God's fine with homosexuality. That God doesn't care what gender you are. You know? When we open up in the Bible and it says that God created us male and female, You'd think that God wouldn't have to define that when he created Adam and Eve. It's, it's obvious that they're male and female, correct? But yet he records it in the word because he knew that we would contest it. And I'm not trying to offend anyone, but I just want to tell you sincerely from my heart, if you're wrestling with your gender, you're ultimately wrestling with the Lord. Because God made you male and God made you female. And I understand there's a lot of horrific things that happen to people and there's sexual abuse and that hurts deeply and causes people to to view their gender sometimes with a twisted lens, but ultimately you're created in God's image, and God created you male, and God created you female. And God said that the sexual relationship was to be between a man and a woman. That's where sex is to be expressed, is between a man and a woman, inside of the commitment of marriage. It's God's institution. It's God's word. And what's interesting to me is we go all the way back to the church of Pergamos, and they were already starting to argue with God on his message of sexuality. This is nothing new, guys. This has been happening inside of the church for a really, really long time. And I think it's important for us to realize God's message on sex is for his glory and our edification, so that God can be glorified and that you can be edified. God wants you to have life, and he wants you to have it more abundantly, and so he wants you to walk inside of his teaching of sex. I think that we're at a point where we realize the world doesn't have anything to offer when it comes to sexuality. Maybe you're at a point in your life where you're like, I'm ready to do it God's way. But the problem was at the Church of Pergamos, you weren't hearing that taught. You weren't hearing that taught. And Jesus then addresses that, and he says, look, this teaching of Balaam has to be corrected. In verse 15, thus you also have those who hold to the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which is the thing I hate. We talked about them with the church of Ephesus. 
And unlike the church of Ephesus, they're welcoming them into the church and allowing them to teach. In verse 16, repent or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Always room for repentance with Christ. Always room for restoration. Jesus is reaching out to the church of Pergamos and he's saying, look, get it right. Start holding to God's word. Don't hold to the doctrine of Balaam anymore. Teach what God teaches about sexuality and follow him. But if you don't, Jesus says he's gonna go on the offensive and he's gonna come deal with the false teaching inside of the church. I would much rather have Jesus defending the church than him coming after us with his two-edged sword, don't you? And there's, enough, there, there's something about Christ that there should be some holy respect and awe where we have fear, fear of Christ. So verse 17, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. What, what is God's Spirit saying to us? when it comes to this area of the doctrine of Balaam. Are you kind of ashamed of God's message on sexuality? You know, is there, is there a part of you that maybe goes, you know, I'm not in that place, and I do believe in what God says about sexuality, but I, I have a hard time talking about it because people are gonna think that I'm a hate monger, right? Well, why are you ashamed about God's message on sexuality? Someone's gotta give the message of what it should be out there, right? Right? Not that we're mean or we beat people up or we're arrogant or we're prideful, but we don't need to be ashamed that God created sex and that he created it for a man and a woman inside of the, the commitment of marriage. And wh what is the Spirit saying, you know? What is, what is he speaking? You know, have you uh, adopted a theology of God where you can believe in Christ and trust him for salvation, but then you're gonna do whatever you want with your body? And say, I hear this message on what God has to say about sexual integrity, but, but I'm not going to follow the Lord in, in that manner. Well, then listen to what the Spirit says. What is the Spirit saying to you? Because I can guarantee you, if we're God's children, God cares about our purity in all areas of our lives, sexuality in included. And he's going to begin to speak to you. And he's going to begin to speak to me. And he's going to begin to cleanse our temple. What's the Spirit of God saying? And then to him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat, and I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name, which is written on it, no one knows except him who receives it. Can God forgive and restore sexual sin? Absolutely. Look what he's ready to do for this church. He says, I'm ready to give you hidden manna. What could the church of Pergamos look like if they repented and they got back to teaching God's word? People come in and they're like, man, I've never heard this before. And then God begins to provide hidden manna. What was manna? That daily provision that God gave to the children of Israel in the wilderness. You might be saying, man, it's so hard for me to live in sexual purity. Well, follow the Lord and see the hidden manna that he'll give to you. See what he'll provide if you choose to walk in in obedience. He has hidden manna. And then what is this with this white stone and a name is written. That white always speaks of purity and God making the church of Pergamos clean and then God writes his name, a specific name that no one knows except Christ. When you have a, a name that nobody else knows, it speaks of a very personal relationship, right? Like your spouse probably calls you some things other than your name that you don't want anybody else to know, right? because of the closeness of your relationship with your spouse. Parents, you probably have nicknames for your kids, right? Each one of them's got their own name of endearment, and this speaks of that close relationship with Christ. God loves to change names. If you notice that in Scripture, Abram becoming Abraham, Jacob becoming Israel, Simon becoming Peter, Saul becoming Paul, and when he changes our name, it speaks of his work in our lives. And so this is a very personal and close relationship with Christ. So what did God say to the church of Ephesus? Return to your first love. Is that God's message to you this evening? I've got to tell you, there's been several times in my relationship with the Lord that God's used this section of scripture to call me back to my first love. 
I've always got to be guarding my heart. Am I loving the Lord? It's very easy to get to a place where there's good works and there's sound doctrine, but there's not love. Do you need to return to your first love? Church of Smyrna, don't fear the tribulation coming. Maybe you're fearing the tribulation coming. Maybe some of you can see the handwriting on the wall and you go, culture is changing and there's going to be persecution for the name of Christ in the United States of America and I'm really afraid. And God would say, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid about future tribulation that's going to come. Or is it the church of Pergamos? Don't hold to the doctrine of Balaam. Don't miss Christ. Don't mix Christ with the teachings of this world. We've got to be very careful to say, this is the teaching of the world. This isn't the teaching of Christ. And accept what God teaches about sexuality. Tonight's the night of repentance and walking with the Lord in that area of sexual integrity. Is there a relationship that you've started to have outside of your marriage? Cut it off tonight. Get right with the Lord. Is there pornography that needs to get out of your life? You know, are you living with your boyfriend or girlfriend and you know it's not right? You're believers and that's not where you're supposed to be. Man, choose to move out. Choose to be right before the Lord. Choose to get married. But that commitment to say that this is important to God. You know, we're, we're doing God a disservice if we adopt the message of the world when it comes to this area of sexuality. And then most importantly, as we close in prayer tonight, is what is the Spirit saying to the church? And what's the Spirit saying to me? So let's close in prayer and give, give the Holy Spirit opportunity to speak to us. Jesus, thank you that you're in the midst of your church. You're, you're here with us tonight. And we know that, Holy Spirit, you are speaking, and we want to be listening. So he that has ears, let him hear what the Spirit would say to Rocky Mountain Calvary this evening. Just let the Lord speak to your heart. Just encourage you to respond to whatever the Lord is speaking to you. Dialogue back with the Lord. And as we take communion tonight, just feel led from the Lord to encourage us that this is a time of intimacy with the Lord. There are a lot of times that we can take communion for granted, but let's wait upon the Lord and remember his sacrifice, his broken body, his shed blood. And as we confess sin to the Lord to receive forgiveness afresh, to really allow him to, to meet with us. So Jesus, would you bless this time of communion? May you really continue just to speak to our hearts as we wait upon you. We love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.